Good evening, everybody, and welcome to this um, event. Our, my, my name is Karen Eifler, and together with Father Charlie Gordon, we run the Garaventa Center for Catholic Intellectual Life in American Culture, where our favorite favorite verb is to collaborate. At, uh, we love to partner up with every unit on campus, and one of our fav, uh, favorite new partners is the School of Nursing. Um, so I welcome... Uh, it's, it's really great to be in a room full of healers. I welcome our nursing students who are here and their faculty who are teaching them to be men and women with hope and compassion and empathy and serious skills to bring to hospitals and clinics and any place that people are ailing. To um, some of our regular patrons from the community, we're happy to see you and I think that there are some School of Nursing alums here. So welcome to all of you. I know that we have an evening of stories that you are not going to forget. They're going to be seared onto your mind and heart, and so I want to get out of the way as quickly as I can. Um, first, I, I also wanted to make sure that we uh, took, took five seconds of of uh, good thoughts and aim them, beam them like laser beams directly at Dr. Joanne Mosseri as she is on her own journey of healing. And it was Joanne who helped us put together the program tonight. We wanted to, um, we came across Dr. Joseph Dutkowski, who's going to be one of our speakers through the uh, kindness of Father Jim Gallagher, director of campus ministry. And as we were talking about bringing um, Dr. Dutkowski out, uh, Dr. Mosseri was really insistent that while the stories of an orthopedic surgeon who works with medically fragile children are going to be really important for health practitioners to hear and to um, listen to to the ways that he combines the gifts of his faith, his deep convicted faith with the tools of science and reason and um, and his professional partners, Dr. Mosseri was really insistent that the voice of a nurse who is at the bedside of medically fragile children would be really, really important for this audience to hear as well. And so we're really grateful to Dr. Katie Strong, a doctor of nurse practitioner, a nurse practitioner herself, who, who has a long and varied international career herself working with kids most at risk. So the format for tonight is that we're going to start with uh, a nurse's perspective, um, hearing from Dr. Katie Strawn, and then Dr. Dutkowski is going to tell some of his stories, and then a lot of the nursing students have submitted questions that they want, they knew who was coming tonight, and they have some questions that they'd like answered, and I'm sure some other questions will be triggered by the compelling stories that you hear. So Dr. Casey Shillam, uh, Associate Dean in the School of Nursing here, is going to facilitate a question and answer for the last 15 or 20 minutes or so. A word, we have uh, lots of food and we hate for food to go to waste, so I hope you will enjoy that in the reception afterwards. And gracing the aisles on the sides, we have nursing mandalas that were created by the students in uh, Dr. Angie Raber's Nursing 301 class. And it's a side of nurses that you don't always get to see, that creative, um, artistic side, and I've already broken one of them. So be really careful uh, when you're interacting with those, but, but do take them in because it really helps you see our nurses as whole people. So I want to get out of the way and turn the podium over to Dr. Katie Strawn, who is going to start off our discussion with, with stories and insights into how our great healers um, go beyond health care to get to healing. Dr. Strawn. 
Okay, so I thought a lot about what I wanted to say today, and I thought a lot about how to describe sort of my experiences in healthcare and, and what healthcare has meant to me and how I have um, sort of processed that throughout the years. And I realized uh, as I was putting together this, I kept coming back to one patient. And um, this one patient I met fairly early on in my career within the first couple years. And his story and his family have been what I would say as the most influential uh, family that I've ever worked with. And so I realized um, that I just wanted to talk about him. So I'm just going to tell you the story of, of my I say my patient, um, the the one that touched me the most, and and hopes that you guys will see past um, see past the side of medicine that is on the surface to uh, what we the reason why we all either go into healthcare or become caregivers, uh, because we are all going to be caregivers at some point in our life for someone, whether that be just ourselves, whether that be a family member, or whether that be our patients. So I brought some pictures, so don't worry, this is not a lecture um, for some of my former students in here. Um, so this is one of my very favorite pictures from my nursing career, and I started out um, as a neonatal intensive care nurse. Let me break this picture down for some of you guys. Um, so this is a patient in my unit. This is uh, my patient Bradley. His name is Bradley Burke. And you're probably wondering, where is that patient? I can't even see him. So he's in there. He's in the bed. He's way tucked away in there. But everything you see, everything you see there was is what's keeping Bradley alive in this picture. So all these little green squares and these green boxes are attached to pumps that have medicine running into him all the time. So you can start to count and see how many medicines he was on when I took this picture. So all those medicines were going in his body at that point. <coughs> this machine back here with these little red numbers that you can't see, that's his breathing machine. This breathing machine, it's a special breathing machine. Now some breathing machines, give a breath in and then the breath goes out and then give a breath in and the breath goes out. He was born so small that his lungs weren't even developed enough to do this. So this machine keeps his lungs open all the time by literally putting a jet pump in there and pumping his lungs. So they're just constantly inflated all the time. This over here is an inhaled gas to make the gas, the, to make his blood circulate a little bit faster and a little bit more efficiently. And all of those monitors in the background are what tells me how he's doing and what I need to adjust. So in all of this, do you see a human in this picture? You don't. And I think especially when we first start off in our careers, we get so frozen by the numbers and we get so frozen by the machines that we sort of forget the person that's behind there. So here he is. This is Bradley. This is little Bradley Burke. Bradley Burke was born at 25 weeks. So typically babies cook for about 40 weeks. He only cooked for 25 weeks. Um, we don't know what happened. His mother Natasha woke up one night and knew that it was time to go to the hospital. Her water had broken and there was nothing they could do. By the time she got to the hospital, he was mostly delivered. So out he came. So Bradley was born 25 weeks. I'll be honest, I don't remember exactly how big he was, but I don't know if any of you guys have ever heard of some of these apps and these things. We really like to compare babies to fruits and vegetables these days. So just to give you an idea, 
Bradley was the size of a rutabaga when he came out. So Bradley was rutabaga sized. Um, he was, and you can see, this is Bradley's father, Chris. So these are Chris's hands, and this is Bradley's little foot. And way over here, you can see Bradley's tiny little hand. So he was very, 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 very small when he was born. When he was born, he couldn't breathe on his own, so we put a breathing machine in him. Um, when he was born, he couldn't eat on his own, so we put a feeding tube in him. When he was born, he couldn't regulate his own body temperature, so we put him in a special bed that regulated his body temperature for him. We did all of these things, but all things considered, at 25 weeks, he was doing really well. Um, and then his parents got a phone call. Now, he wasn't at my hospital at this time. He was at a different outlying hospital. But his parents got a call in the middle of the night, and they said something's not right with Bradley. We're not really sure what it is. We know that his blood pressure went from really, really good to all of a sudden now his blood pressure is really, really bad. And we're having to use a lot of medicines to keep his blood pressure up. We don't know what's happening. We're going to have to run some tests. And to be honest, we don't really have the facilities at this hospital to do these tests. So we're going to send an airplane to fly your child in the middle of the night to this other special referral hospital. And that was the hospital that I worked in. It was a hospital where the only patients that we get are patients that come from outlying hospitals um, who have children who need special testing done because we have special machines that they could use. So the parents, of course, said yes, absolutely. Chris and Natasha said, do anything that you can for our child. We want anything done, everything done. Um, and they said, of course, yes, let's get him to the hospital. So they got Bradley to my hospital. And this is what we found. Um, let me break down this picture just a little bit. This is an MRI of the brain. The picture on the right is a normal MRI. And this is what a normal person's brain looks like. This was Bradley's, this actually isn't Bradley's brain, but this is similar to what Bradley's brain looked like. He had what's called a grade four intraventricular hemorrhage and it was bilateral, it was on both sides, which means it was on both sides of the ventricle and it was a grade four, which is the worst that you can possibly have. So what does that mean? That means that Bradley, at one week old, had a massive, massive stroke. And the reason he had that is because at 25 weeks, the vessels in our brain are like tissue paper. They're so tiny and they're so fragile and they just haven't become very strong yet. So. What caused this? We don't know. It could have been something as simple as a diaper change where you lift the legs up over the baby's head, something really simple like that. It could have been that he just got a little bit too warm. He's not able to regulate his own temperature, so his body temperature just went up just a little bit. We don't know. It could have been, it could have been stress from crying. Um, so we have no idea what happened. But unfortunately, we don't know what happens when babies have these strokes, just like we don't know what happens when grown-ups have strokes. We can't necessarily determine they're definitely going to get better or they're definitely not going to get better. But we know that, you know, a grade one is not so bad. A grade four is very, very bad. A bilateral grade four is very, very, very bad. So at this point, the medical team sat down with Bradley's family and they said, you know, we don't, we can't see into the future. We don't have a crystal ball. But we know that with a brain that looks like this, Bradley's never going to eat by himself. He's never going to walk on his own. We know that he is never going to develop as a, quote, normal child. And they said, so we'll give you the choice. We can remove all the medical equipment and just let him go. It's up to you. And they kind of pushed him to, do, to make that decision. 
And the parents, I'll be honest with you, they didn't think about it. They said, no, absolutely not. We want to keep our baby alive. And they said, of course, if God takes him, then he takes him. But we want everything done. And that was their decision. So I said, okay. So Bradley actually got a little bit better. So this is Bradley the very first time he's ever being held by his parents. This is Chris and Natasha. Um, this is them holding their child after about six weeks in the hospital. It took six weeks for them to hold their baby for the very first time. And the only reason that they held their baby is because the nurse, and it wasn't me, but it was one of my colleagues, said, you know what, you haven't actually held your baby yet, ever, have you? Would you like to do that? And you guys will learn when you get out to the hospitals or those of you that are already working in the hospitals, to move a person with a breathing tube from one place to another is a monumental task. So you can see here is his giant breathing tube, here's his feeding tube. He's got all sorts of monitors and wires and everything, but it was worth it to move him so that his mother could hold him for the very first time. So Bradley grew and he did get bigger and he did get a little bit better. And this is him at about two months and he's doing even better. So Bradley continued to grow um, and Bradley even got his breathing tube out. So here he is with his breathing tube, and now he just has a little nasal cannula. So at this point, Bradley is doing okay. We haven't really done a whole, you know, we can't do a lot of developmental testing at this point. We don't really know what he's doing, but he's doing what he's supposed to be doing. He was so sweet. His parents came and visited him every single day, even though they lived about 30 miles from the hospital. But every day they were there to hold him. And then we got a, they got a phone call in the middle of the night. And I apologize if this is a disturbing picture, but this is what happened. In the middle of the night, Bradley's family got another phone call. This is the second phone call they'd gotten in the middle of the night to say, your son now has necrotizing enterocolitis, or neck, if anybody's ever heard of that. What neck is, it's a bacteria. We don't know why it happens. We don't know what causes it. We know that it, premature infants are much more susceptible to it. But for whatever reason, the bacteria inside of your intestines turns on itself and it eats away your intestines and it turns it into Swiss cheese. So for no reason that we know of, Bradley's body turned on him and ate almost all of his intestines away. And you can't live without intestines. You can live for a short amount of time, but you can't live your whole entire life on nothing but IV nutrition. So for the second time, these parents had to be sat down and they had to be told, your kid's probably not gonna make it. Now we, you know, we know that your kid is never gonna you know, walk, he's never gonna run and play, he's never gonna skip, he's never gonna do any of these things. And now we know that he's never, not only is he not going to be able to feed himself, but he's never going to be able to tolerate any food in his mouth ever again. We're going to have to put a special tube into his belly and feed him through his belly for the rest of his life. If you would like to take away care at this point, we would totally support you. And we can take, turn off all the machines. And Bradley's family, again, didn't, didn't think about it for a second. And they said, you know what? Nope. We want, him, we want to give him the opportunity to fight. And if God wants to take him, then we'll accept that. But we need to give him the opportunity. So they did. And Bradley got better. Bradley got well enough, eventually, to get all the tubes out. He got better, um, and he got well enough to do things like 
be held every day and get to take baths and he got to have a pacifier and just little things, little milestones that his parents had never gotten to do with him. Um, and he got so well that about nine months old, Bradley got to go home. He spent from the day he was born until the day he was about nine months old in the hospital. Every single day, he'd never been outside before, he'd never seen the sunshine, nothing, but he got to go home. So this is Bradley and his mother going home for the very first time. And this is me and Bradley. And I actually had formed such a bond with this family at this point because I'd just never seen a family who believed in their son so much and who had so much joy every time they saw their son that it just gave me so much joy to be around them. And so they came to me and they said, you know, Bradley's going to be going home. Bradley was going to go home with quite a few, quite a bit of accessories. He was going to have a heart. Um, he, was, he had a tube that was going straight into his heart that would um, provide different types of medicine, um, some nutrition. He had a tube that was going into his stomach. So he had to have that. And then eventually he had had a tube place that ran from his brain down into his abdomen to drain the cerebral spinal fluid away because remember he had that huge stroke and his brain wasn't able to circulate the cerebral spinal fluid like we're able to do. So Bradley had at least three different tubes, but he went home. But because of all those tubes, they were... Um, they were told that they could have nursing in the home, and so they had an outside company, and they approached me and said, would you be willing to come and work for this company and be Bradley's nurse at home? And then I got to um, give them the gift of not thinking about it for a second, and I said, yes, absolutely. I want that opportunity to see him grow up, to see what, what's happening with him, to be able to care for him at home, because I'd... I'd grown so close to him and I'd had such a bond with him and his family that I said absolutely I would like to be able to give that to you. So I did. I, w I didn't get to go every day. I had to keep my other job but once a week I went down and I got to spend time with Bradley and he had a whole little hospital room set up in his in his bedroom at home. He had all the same machines and the same equipment that we did and so I was able to spend time with his family once a week for about a year. So Bradley got to have his first birthday at home. Here he is on his very first birthday, and you can see his feeding tube. You can see how happy his parents are. And, you know, Bradley didn't have a lot of ways of expressing it, but we certainly thought that Bradley was pretty happy. So things were going really, really well at home. On his first birthday, his parents, and I went to his first birthday party. It was lots of fun. Um, his parents said, I asked them, what can I give to you as a birthday present for Bradley? What does he want? What does he need? And they said, you know what we want and what we need is a night out. They hadn't had a single night out since Bradley had been home. Um, and they had not had, an, I mean, they had no chances to go out. You can't go out when your child is in the NICU and enjoy a date night and be with your significant other. So they said, we know you'll be here as a hired trained nurse. So would you be willing to babysit for him just this one night? I said, absolutely, of course, no problem. So I get over there. My normal shift was like seven in the morning till about seven at night. Um, so we just, we moved it around and I, you know, I think I got there like 10 in the morning and I was going to stay till about 10 at night. Totally normal day. Uh, Bradley was fine. Um, said goodbye to Chris and Natasha around six. They went off to 
the restaurant and Bradley, I'd taken Bradley out of his crib and he was on the floor on a little play mat, just kind of doing what he does. Um, just waving his arms and waving his legs and kind of babbling to himself. And I don't know what I, I was, I think I was just sitting there kind of hanging out, doing some charting, um, cause you do have to chart when you do these things. <laughs> um, and I noticed that Bradley's not moving for a second and I was like, huh, that's weird. He must've fallen asleep. And I look over and his eyes are rolled back into the back of his head. And all of a sudden I see that there's vomit coming out of the side of his mouth. I said, well, that's not good. So I did what I'm trained to do and turned him over and pat him on the back thinking, okay, he's vomited. And then I noticed that Bradley's not breathing anymore. He had completely stopped breathing. And then Bradley started seizing. And then at this point, I'm alone in a home with a baby who is full on, who is having a full on code, a code moment where I have to then do CPR and everything. It's the worst case scenario. It's every nurse's worst nightmare. It's every physician's worst nightmare. It's anybody's worst nightmare in healthcare. And it was awful. It was really, really awful to know that I'd taken care of this child for over a year and that he was going to die there in front of me. But I did everything that I thought I could do and my nursing instincts. I did, hopefully you guys all remember this, five cycles of CPR and then you call 911 and then you go back and you do CPR until they get there. So I did everything and I went through the whole, the whole process and, um, and the ambulance came. And they took one look at him and they were like, we have absolutely no idea what to do. We don't work with children. This is horrifying. Like you're a nurse, just come with us in the ambulance. You keep doing what you're doing and we'll support you. So my nightmare continued. Um, so I did, I got in the back of the van. We did the whole thing. At this point I had called his parents to tell him. And for the third time they'd gotten a call at night saying, Bradley's not breathing. I don't know what's going on. I'm doing CPR and the ambulance is on their way or the ambulance is here, please come. And as we were pulling out of the house, the parents were pulling up. And so they followed the ambulance and the ambulance was one of those ambulances that has big windows in the back. So they saw everything. They saw someone doing compressions to their child the entire time. They saw people, needles going everywhere and drills and lines and really truly a parent's worst nightmare. So we got to the hospital and Bradley still had a heartbeat and Bradley was still breathing, um, assisted. But Bradley, at this point, they put the IV lines in and they put him back on the breathing machine. And these parents, for the third time, were sat down and said, he's extremely septic. He has a raging infection with all of his other complicated health needs we think that it would be appropriate to withdraw care and turn off the machines and you guys would we would totally support you doing that and the parents didn't think about it and they said nope we want to give him a chance to live so that was seven years ago this is bradley now and this is bradley with his younger brother this is bradley at disney world with his younger brother actually just last month um so bradley's around eight years old now um he doesn't walk he doesn't talk he doesn't feed himself but he smiles and he laughs and he loves his family and when they walk into a room he laughs and he smiles and they smile right back so this is his whole family now and this is bradley and while bradley may not look like a quote normal child 
he is. He is because he has a family that loves him. He is cared for. He brings joy to people and they bring joy to him. So while that doesn't always look the same to everyone, to me, this family has brought so much joy and love and caring to the world. And I talk about him because Bradley and his family taught me that there is a difference between patient care and caring for a patient. And so I hope that you guys will find that patient in your career that teaches you that difference because they're out there. And it may be that it might not just be one patient, but a whole amalgamation of patients will teach you that to care for someone is the greatest gift that you can give. Thank you. That was wonderful, uh, truly wonderful. There's a lot of things that come out of that. First off is that children refuse to read textbooks. And uh, it's so true. They, they, don't lift, they don't follow the rules all the time. And you've heard a very eloquent talk, which is very true. You can't care for a child, especially a special needs child, unless you care for their family and their community. And, and their community can be their church, it can be their grocery store, it can be the ballet school, it can be the University of Portland. And so that, that really, it, God love Bradley and his family because that's, that's, really, that's really what we're all about. Um, my name is Jody Kowski. I'm a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. Uh, for the last 32 years, it's been my pleasure and honor to care for people of all ages with disabilities. Um, and uh, it's a real honor to be asked to come out here to the University of Portland. So I'd like to thank Dr. Eifler. I'd like to thank Father Gordon. I'd like to thank uh, Father Gallagher for this. Uh, you're beautiful to be out here. Your kindness is highly appreciated. Your wisdom is yet in question. <laughs> The year was 1999. I'll admit it. I was discouraged. Maybe even bordering on despondency. After all the years of endless studying and work and sleepless nights, being a doctor wasn't anything like I expected it would be. Visions of helping mankind had dissolved in the reality of the quotas and clinic schedules and operative cases. Delays with insurance preauthorizations and the ever-present hospital administrators with their critical monthly balance sheets. Medicine was business. Business meant money. And I felt I had involved little since I was 16 years old in stacking groceries. Then my pager went off. It was Friday, I was on call, and an 85-year-old woman, Mildred, had fallen down and had a college fracture. You know that fracture where your wrist falls back when you fall down in an outstretched arm? She was in a small rural hospital with no orthopedist, and it would have to be set. I told him to splint her wrist and have her, drive, have her family drive her to my hospital. Two hours passed, no Mildred. Under normal circumstances, it took no more than 45 minutes to drive from this hospital to my hospital. I went back to work. Another hour passed, and still no Mildred. 
concerned, I called the clinic receptionist and then the emergency room to see if anybody had seen her. They hadn't. Finally, three and a half hours after my initial page, I got a call from our ER that she had arrived. I walked into the ER to find a panicked elderly woman in a wheelchair with her right arm in a splint. A nurse knelt beside her trying to calm her, but the woman was absolutely inconsolable. I tried to speak with her, but it was as if she didn't hear me. She continued weeping, and between heartbroken sobs, she cried out, I'm afraid I've lost Gordon. Gordon was Mildred's husband. More sobs followed. Finally, Mildred was able to say, He went to park the car, but I'm sure he's gotten himself lost. You see, Gordon gets confused. He could be anywhere. I asked one of our security officers to go out in the parking lot and look for an Oldsmobile 88 going around in circles. Shortly thereafter, he led Gordon to the emergency room. With sobs of joy, Mildred had her husband back. I introduced myself to Gordon and started a conversation to try and relax the tension. He was very pleasant and very forgetful. Her thoughts were well-founded. Mildred and I have been married for 63 years, Gordon said more than once. Repeatedly, he told me the exact same stories of their two children and told Mildred several times that he was pretty sure he wasn't going to be able to find their car in the parking lot. (laughs) The more Gordon talked, the more amazed I was that they had made it at all to the hospital. (laughs) Yet as our conversation went on, I noted real tenderness between this husband and wife that transcended age and forgetfulness. As Gordon retold his stories over and over again, completely unaware that he was repeating himself, Mildred smiled and laughed and added little details as if it was the first time Gordon had told the story rather than the fifth. She looked at him in a way that made it clear that even after 63 years, this small man was her hero. Not even her broken wrist or the presence of some doctor they had never met before in their lives could dampen their affection for one another. Now that Gordon had been found, I went to work to set Mildred's broken wrist. I gave her a hematoma block to numb the pain. As far as I could tell, there was nothing at all unusual about this colleague's fracture. As I went to set her fracture, Mildred suddenly turned to her husband and said, Gordon, come hold me tight. The words penetrated me. Come hold me tight. Four little words that said more of a deep, trusting love and commitment than any lyricist has ever composed in all the love songs ever written. I watched as Gordon pushed himself out of the chair and tottered to Mildred. Gently, He put his arm around her, and with a tender touch and protection, he held tight his love of 63 years. My soul melted. As Gordon wrapped his arm around Mildred, something wonderfully profound changed within me. I did not fully understand the change at the moment, but I knew without a doubt it had taken place. For two decades... I'd worked tirelessly to master the basic and clinical sciences that gave me the understanding and skills to care for Mildred in the ER that day. At the same time, I maintained my faith in a loving and present God and tried to live in accordance with that belief. Yet through all those years of my life as a scientist and life as a believer, 
the two operated as parallel pathways that occasionally bumped into each other but never came together as one. Then Mildred and Gordon walked in the ER. It may sound odd that watching two old lovers care for one another could trigger such a profound transformation, but there was something in that moment that forced my two parallel words to collide head-on. The two, faith and science, came together like two elements which collide in a nuclear fusion reaction to form a new third element. The release of energy was immense. And this new element formed by this reaction of faith and science became my guide for my practice and life from that moment onward. I had been given a new yardstick to measure the world. Suddenly, this was just not another procedure. The routine college fracture became anything but routine for the moment Gordon wrapped his arms around Mildred. I ceased to be merely the doctor there to set the broken wrist of an 85-year-old woman whose husband suffered from Alzheimer's disease. Instead, I became a witness to what I can only describe as the glory of God playing out before my eyes. And I have never gotten over the experience. If you've been in the world of healthcare for more than a few weeks, you know that not all of the profound events that we witness are as beautiful and tender as the story of Mildred and Gordon. In fact, many of them test you to the depths of your very soul. This past fall, I operated on a young man with autism. Initially, post-op, he did very well. However, a week after surgery, the patient became very agitated and violent. I had his mother bring him to the clinic and I admitted him to the hospital. He was clearly out of control with self-abusive behavior and swinging and kicking at all of us. About a brief history, I realized that three days post-op, his primary care had increased his psychotropic medications to a toxic dose. A psychiatrist was called and tried every means to sedate the patient as a nurse, a physician's assistant, and myself physically restrained him. I held his shoulders, watching his agonized and tortured face with his teeth snapping inches from my exposed arm. When the psychiatrist had run out of options, we moved the patient to the ICU, started a propofol drip, anesthetizing him and intubated him overnight to allow his body to detox. The following morning, he was himself again. My arms ached for days as the struggle at the bedside lasted for two and a half hours. Several times as I held his shoulders down, maintaining my focus to avoid those snapping teeth, I looked at the scared and tortured face and wondered if that was the face of Jesus as he was being nailed to the cross for me. Faith and science. Two worlds that in the last century have drifted apart like two continents, forever reshaping the geography of the intellectual world. The origin of the word science is from the Latin word scientia, which simply means knowledge. It's fundamentally the study of our universe using empirical techniques to provide explanations and predictions of the world around us. And so we learn subjects like physics and chemistry 
which we have developed further into the clinical sciences of physiology and pharmacology. And then there are social sciences like psychology, sociology, which study the individual and corporate human behavior. Contemporary culture considers science the realm of rational men and women who choose the pursuit of an educated mind. In contrast, Faith in our time seems to have been relegated to the image of a fluffy bunny, happily romping across the weak parts of your brain. I have been asked repeatedly when I talk about faith in science, why don't I talk about faith and reason? Well, the answer is very simple. Faith, like science, is reasonable. All one has to do is read Augustine or Aquinas to explain how these great minds have wrestled and reasoned with the issues of faith. However, as an engineer turned surgeon, I have actually never read Augustine or Aquinas, so that's not going to help this talk any. <laughs> but you know, you don't have to be knowledgeable in Einstein's theory of relativity either to understand that every time you let go of an object, it always falls down. You need a framework to apply to your observations. I'm going to share mine with you tonight. I'm sure it's not nearly as eloquent as the writings of the great philosophers, and I highly suspect Father Jim and Father Charlie did not study in their theology courses at Notre Dame. I mean, it has nothing to do with football. <laughs> but nonetheless, it's been helpful for me. You will pardon the anatomic basis, but this is a nursing school, and I am a surgeon. I call it the theology of 18 inches. Faith starts in your head. No visitor to Earth steps off a spaceship and says, I'm a traditional Catholic, and I like the Latin Mass. Okay? Somebody has to teach you the faith. You through teaching, learning, observations, or modeling. Your faith journey begins as an intellectual event. However, if it stays in your head, it's never really your faith. It's someone else's given to you. Faith becomes your own when it travels 18 inches from your head to your heart. That's when you realize God is for real. And you have a one-on-one -on -one love relationship with the creator of the entire cosmos, including you. And that this God is absolutely ecstatic about it. Encouraging, encountering this beatific passion, you can only submit to being engulfed in a divine love centered on you. As you allow yourself to be wrapped in this celestial love, you find that your faith life is on the move again traveling through your chest and your abdomen, going to the left side of your body, and landing in your left back pocket where you keep your wallet. Yes, you become more financially generous, but in life you become a giver instead of a taker. It's not what I can get from my boyfriend or my girlfriend or my spouse or my neighbor or my job, but it's what can I give? And you know these people. You see them in the hospital. It may be a doctor, it may be a nurse, it may be in somebody in food service or maintenance. But these are givers and not takers. And people are drawn to them. 
Then faith is on the move again, traveling 18 inches from your wallet to your knees, and you become a prayer. We can all pray, and God hears all prayers. But when you reach this step in your faith journey, prayer is no longer something you do, but it's someone you are. It becomes natural as breathing. And it means that you're developing a steady, continuous dialogue with your Creator and the author of all love. But faith doesn't stop there. It then travels one last 18 inches from your knees to your feet, and you become a disciple. The most successful parish, diocesan, or collegiate evangelization program is an individual Christian who walks the faith. Others are drawn to these disciples as they think, this person has all the problems I have in life. They're going through the studying, they're going through this, they have somebody who's ill, they're feeling this, but they're doing all right. Why am I dealing with addiction? Why am I dealing with bad relationships? Why am I dealing with depression? Why am I dealing with anxiety? I want what they have. And then a heart softens so that love can break through. So in my framework, once faith journey starts in your head, moves to your heart, your left back pocket, your knees, and then your feet. Reasonable, huh? And one can use something like this as a platform to assess your own faith life. I mean, if you're having trouble with your prayer life, maybe you're hanging on to stuff a little too much. And you need to be a bit more of a giver. And that's what's holding you back. So let me ask you, what's the hardest 18 inches to travel? The answer is, it's from your head to your heart, because you can't do it. You can't make yourself do it. You have to surrender to love and let God do that. And if you've never taken that step, may I suggest that you do it? It's really cool. It's the best 18 inches your level travel, and you'll never turn back. You see, you can't give yourself faith. It's a gift, right? It's a gift. You can only grow and mature it. But let me ask you another question. What did you do to get the ability to understand chemistry or physiology or pharmacology or psychology? Your ability to gain knowledge or science is a gift as well. It's all a gift. So what's the difference? Why the chasm? It really makes no sense whatsoever. It's what you do with the gift. Nowhere in the life issues of faith and science come together more clearly than in the life of a nurse or a doctor in their one-on-one -on -one encounter with patients. These unplanned meetings between two strangers are often thrown together in situations of great stress, uncertainty, fear, and fatigue. Two persons, one in serious need and the other one with scientific knowledge and skill may have nothing in common other than a shared life force which in itself binds them together permanently and unconditionally. 
It is not merely intellectual, emotional, and physical bond, but a metaphysical one as well. Because empirical science alone can never explain that life force that binds them together so closely. Their understandings of God and the eternal may be completely different. But it's that metaphysical dimension is always there, whether it is addressed or not. Now, as doctors and nurses, it is not our place to use that encounter to push our faith, but to be open to how a patient's faith journey may be impacted by their illness, disease, or trauma, and to truly listen should they want to talk about it. This relationship, this encounter between nurse and patient or doctor and patient is the mo one of the most profound of human relationships. It is the difference between a sterile and increasingly dehumanized system that is being misnamed as healthcare and one that embraces the teamwork of faith and science to bring about comfort, care, healing, and in our days, many times the cure, or at least peaceful acceptance of what may be an inevitable outcome to those in need. Let me state clearly that no government, no insurance company, or healthcare administrator has any right to deny the full fruit of this exceptional and unique encounter. You and I are the guardians of that trust. During the early editing of the book that I wrote, I gave it to people I knew and asked them to read it and give me suggestions to make it better. About eight weeks after my wife Karen died, a young Brazilian psychiatrist was assigned to work with me at the Columbia Cerebral Palsy Center so that we could study the mental health needs of adults with cerebral palsy. He heard that I had written a book and asked, and had given it to my secretary and asked if he could read it. Well, of course I said, thinking to myself, this is all I need. I'm going to give my book to some shrink now. <laughs> Two weeks passed, and he came up to me. I read your book, he said, and I want you to know that I went back to church for the first time in 20 years. I realized I was missing something. Daniel not only went back to church, but was confirmed at Easter Vigil Mass that year. He signed up to go with his parish on a mission trip to an orphanage in Nicaragua. There he met Ophelia, an eight-year-old girl who couldn't speak and could barely walk because of her cerebral palsy. Over the course of a week, he made a wonderful friendship with this child, and they shared many meals together at the old beat-up tables of the dining hall in the orphanage. On the day he was before to leave and go home, he came into the dining room to find Ophelia all excited. She took his hand and dragged, him, dragged herself across the floor to the staircase. There, with a highly labored effort, she went up every step, pulling herself up, pointing for Daniel to come with her. After tremendous effort there at the top of the stairs, there she pointed a picture of Jesus sitting with some children, or the words under it that said, Gracias, Señor, or simply, Thanks, Lord. Yes, God loves you, Daniel said to Ophelia, but Ophelia was not, that wasn't what she wanted, and she was kept pointing at Daniel, and she said, Well, yes, God loves me too, Ophelia. 
But Ophelia was even more excited, pointing back and forth. Then suddenly Daniel realized what she was trying to tell him, that he was being given a lesson greater than if Augustine and Aquinas, Freud or Osler, were standing at his side. For Ophelia had put it together. This eight-year-old girl, born with disabilities, leaving her unable to talk and barely able to walk, who had been abandoned by her parents and lived in poverty, had been given a gift of faith to believe that God really did love her. And over the course of weeks, she knew from her own experience, her own knowledge, the ciencia, that Daniel loved her. And what she was telling him was, Daniel, you are the image and likeness of God to me. And so it is for you. And so it is for me. Sometimes it's easy to see the suffering Christ and the patient with terminal cancer, multiple trauma, or the young man with autism that I held down. Too often we forget that our patients see the image and likeness of the healing God in us. Every time you take a blood pressure, bandage a wound, or do the night shift in the ICU, you are the image and likeness of God to the persons across from you who are often scared and worried. You don't have to go to Nicaragua to experience this. It happens all the time in places like Portland, Oregon, in Cooperstown, New York. A few weeks ago, I was interviewed by Lisa Hendy, the founder of CatholicMom.com, for her podcast. She asked me, what do your patients think about your book? No more than 20 minutes after we hung up, I received the following email from a woman in her 40s whom I care for. Due to cerebral palsy, she has only the use of her left arm which she uses to drive a power wheelchair. She is totally dependent on others for her care. In her words, I've been thinking about Grand Canyon memories since I read the first excerpt of your book. I want to share this one with you. You were standing next to me, and you gave me your hand. You didn't say anything. You just did it. It seemed like the most natural thing in the world. It probably sounds stupid, but honestly, you took my breath away. One moment in time can be made absolutely perfect because of one simple choice. Exactly one week ago, I received another email from the same patient. In it, she asked, will you stand by my side when I'm being baptized? Yesterday was the second anniversary of my wife's Karen's death. And if I can convince you this evening that every day you bring the image and likeness of the healing and loving God to your patients, then it will have been worth flying 3,000 miles to give this talk. You owe it to your patients to stay current of the most recent scientific discoveries. Always look to expand your knowledge. You must become proficient and even expert in the skills necessary to be a nurse in whichever theater that you practice. But never, ever 
walk into a patient room and leave half of yourself outside the door. They need that half of you too. And there are times it's the only thing we have to give them. At moments like that frequently, it's the only thing they want. To those of you who are students, there are difficult days ahead of you that will shake your foundation. And there are days that will leave you spellbound in their magnificence. In the brightest and darkest hours, do not ever fall prey to the temptation that you are alone. We, all of us, are there for each other. And I, for one, am excited to welcome you to the greatest profession in the world. So smile until your face hurts. Cry until you have no more tears. Live, live, and practice with your whole being. And when the day comes when you breathe your last and you wake up in the next world, may the first words that you hear be, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you. Thank you so much for those wonderful um, stories of inspiration. And what I hope you are all able to take away with you is this, this common thread of what we were hoping to see tonight. And that is that as you go forth into this career as a healthcare provider, that you recognize that you have that power, you have that gift, and you have that responsibility to show up every day being what we've heard described here today. Uh, so I'm Casey Shellam. I'm the Associate Dean in the School of Nursing, and I have the honor of um, just being able to kind of facilitate a conversation with our guests here. In preparation, we sent an email out to some faculty and asked them to reach out to some students to just solicit some initial questions. So I will let you sit and ponder and think of the questions you have while I ask a couple, but I really open this up and I hope you um, will take the invitation to ask your questions and to engage um, as well with what are the thoughts in your minds tonight. So I would like to just ask, and I think we can do this without the microphone, don't you think? Sure. Can, we, can I step over here and kind of take more of an intimate approach? <laughs> okay, so I don't feel like I'm stuffed up behind a podium. So I'd like to ask the first question that I think was really profound from some of the students, and it was kind of the same common theme of given that um, we are exploring how to come into this world as healthcare providers, as nurses, and we know we need to give of ourselves and to care for patients and to care for families. Um, and Dr. Strawn, I love that that was the, the, the message that you delivered. It isn't providing patient care, it really is caring for that family. How do you take care of yourself? And I think that ties into what you were talking about in providing care for, and also Dr. Dukowski about how do you go into that with your faith? And so I'd just like to ask each of you, how do you provide that self-care? How do you take care of yourself in those very vulnerable moments? And then how do you show up every single moment for every patient? Um, so I think that the the first thing that comes to mind for me is I couldn't do any I could never have done 
any patient care if I didn't love it. If I didn't love it and if I didn't love what I did, it would it would be such a fast burnout, I wouldn't last. So even though it's hard, I go to work every day and I love it. And I love working with patients and to me, that is a part of my own self-care is doing something that I truly love. Um, but sometimes it gets hard and it gets exhausting and you don't have to work every moment of every day. And so I found that having a way to, having a release valve, uh, meaning being able to go home and enjoy my time at home with my family or with my friends and having a good mixture of people who were in healthcare who I could decompress with and sort of talk, obviously maintaining HIPAA, mm -hmm. talk about my experiences and, and process those experiences with people that could understand and then leave that with those people and go to the people in my life who have nothing to do with healthcare and nothing to do with medicine, and they just like to care for me, and they just like to be my support and to be the people who love me. So finding a good balance and a good mix of those things, um, I found to be incredibly important. Yeah, and I would echo that. There, there's something, you gotta enjoy this, because there, there are magnificent days and there are just horrendous days, like that dad described. Um, the other thing that's really, several things, one is be honest with yourself. If you're having a bad day and you don't like what's going on, be honest with yourself and have it, realize you're having a bad day. You know, we've talked about, with, a lot of this happens at three in the morning, where you just like put an IV, you spend 45 minutes putting an IV into somebody and they just yank it out, all right? And you're battering the hornet. And you feel guilty for being battering the hornet. Well, guess what? It's okay to be angry. Don't, don't let that affect how you treat your patient. But I understand that you're human and you're allowed to feel that way, okay? Especially since a lot of the people who gave you lectures on how to be really nice to people in, the middle, in, in nursing school and medical school, they're in bed. <laughs> They've been in bed for five hours. So you get mad at them too, and that's okay. All right? So that's the first thing. Be honest with yourself. And the second thing is don't ever fall prey to being alone. All right? We need each other in this business. This is, this is all about one-on-one -on -one encounters with people. You're always encountering people. And the red flag, the danger in this business is when you hold it in yourself. And when you start doing that, then you feel ashamed and you don't want to share it more, and the cycle gets worse and worse, and that's when you go home and drink a bottle of wine, all right, or Jack Daniels, or whatever, and or take three Oxycontins, or whatever. And That's and bad self-care. That's, yeah, that's <laughs> bad self-care. And so what you want to do is you, you can't, don't ever feel alone. If you need to cry, or whatever, find somebody you know, and go in a room and cry with them. I mean, you know, I'm a surgeon, okay? I'm one of these blade guys who, you know, I have no emotions, no nothing, okay? All right? But I've taken care of people with special needs. I was the orthopedist at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital for three years. If you need, if you get into a situation and suddenly you're in the middle and you have a kid who's full of cancer and you realize this is real bad, you do your job because you're trained to do it. You do it like a professional. 
and you take care of the family because that's what you do. You can't take care of a kid. You can't take care of an adult without taking care of their family and their community, okay? But then if you got to go into a room and scream or cry or do something, do it. And do it with somebody who does this with you, all right? You can do it with a priest. You can do it with a nurse. You can do it with another doctor. Go in and there and do it. Don't take it home and think you're the only one and, and try and bury it into your system. That's the red flag. And that's how I'm still doing this 32 years later. And it's okay to show emotion in front of patients to an extent. But I remember one of the hardest things for me, I had a patient who, who passed away and he was someone that I was very, very close with. And I started crying at the bedside with the family and my manager pulled me aside and said, that's not professional, you shouldn't do that. And I had the family later talk to me and say, it meant so much to us to see how much you mm -hmm. cared. So be wise with your emotions, but also realize it's okay to have emotions. In You're this, human. Yeah, in this profession. It's okay to have emotions and it's okay to show those emotions. So I'd like to invite anyone who has any questions, please um, share those out. Anyone? <laughs> I know we've got some really amazing students. Claire, well, what are you thinking? Uh, my question is, have your ethics or personal values mm -hmm. ever conflicted with the care that you give based on the family preference? And how do you navigate that conflict? all the time. <laughs> yeah. It happens all the time. Um, with Bradley, I didn't agree with the family. I thought that they should have de-escalated care. I thought that that was the best decision for him. And when they asked for my opinion, I gave it to him. And I stand corrected. So, you can have your morals, and you can have your ethics, and you can have, and you should hold them tightly to you, and they should be your own, and you should be strong with them, and you should um, use them to do your job, but you can never let those affect your judgment in terms of becoming judgmental. You cannot let your ethics judge someone else's decisions or how you perceive what they do. So you can, you should, and you should have your own feelings and thoughts on these things. And if you need to talk to other people about them, your colleagues, then you should. Um, a lot of times, it's never black and white, and you don't realize until you talk to someone how you feel about them. Um, but as long as it doesn't cross into being judgmental, then I think that that's, that's really the line yeah, you have I, to walk. I, I agree. You, you want to stay that, but you, you know, again, talking with others. I mean, we, we do bump into these. For example, in the surgery, okay? Jehovah's Witnesses won't take blood. Okay? And if an adult Jehovah's Witness doesn't want a blood transfusion, honestly, I can sit and let them die. I'd have a real hard time doing that with a kid. Because that kid hasn't made that choice yet. Okay? And and that's a hard thing. And what you try and do is you like you say, you try and have that conversation with patients ahead of time. Yeah? 
I'll, I'll have that conversation with them. The, day, the, the, the hard thing is when you get into the heat of battle and you've got to make those decisions and there's no time to call in the ethics committee. And you've got to make that call. And you've got to live with it. I mean, some of those calls are going to wake you up at night for the next 10 years. By the way, you'll agree with that, won't you? Absolutely. All right, it comes at the turf, and and that's that's where sometimes you you, you look for help. You look for help. Look, talk to your colleagues, talk to somebody, and um, and and find some help and do that. Because sometimes you are going to make some calls which you're going to regret. At least if I certainly have. Um, and um, you have to you have to engage it. You have to live with it. If you, if you get to talk about it, it the the stuff that gets you is the stuff that you don't want to talk about. It's that it's that thing that hides in the back of you. That that's that's the thing that's going to do you bad. And so share it with people whenever you can. You avoid those situations when you can, even though you you weren't necessarily wrong with Bradley. You gave an honest opinion. You gave those paid. You gave that family the best that you had. And when they made decision, you put the best nursing care you put into that kid, okay? And that's 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 the right. That's a decision you can sleep with. All right, you can go home with it. I never. I don't think you made the wrong decision. If you told them, let's go all the way. You think to myself, we should be pulling back on this. Then you have something that you have to think about. Why was I not honest with these people? Why wasn't I not straightforward with them? Why, why couldn't I look at this family in the eye and give them, give them the, what I really feel? Okay? Because um, that, there's a, that, that relationship you have, that, that encounter that I talked about between nurse and patient, doctor and patient, it really is based on shared vulnerabilities. Whether you know it or not, it's based on shared vulnerabilities. That there's not perfection in either of you. You've got the scientific knowledge, you've got the skill set, you've got that kind of stuff. They're sick, and together these two people are going to work to, re to relieve the pain and suffering of one. And that's fundamentally what you're going to do, and what I do, and what you do every day. Knowing your families and your patients and knowing their own morals and their ethics and their values can be incredibly helpful too. Right. So building rapport with them, quick, I mean sometimes we don't see our patients for very long, but building that rapport and understanding them makes the communication so much easier and it makes it go so much better when you do have conflicts. Um, so understanding how they feel, where they're coming from, their backgrounds, um, and how you can relate to that really right. does help a lot. Great, so Kathleen, we're gonna take one more question and then what I'd like to do is um, we'll, we'll wrap up um, the formal portion of the evening, but then both of our guests have agreed to stay around for just a little bit longer and we invite you to carry on the conversation um, and enjoy our refreshments. And um, so I will let you go ahead and ask our last question. I was just wondering, how do you start those conversations with patients about like what their values are Right. Could you repeat the question? Yeah. So the question was, how do you have, how do you start that conversation with patients about what their values are and what their um, morals are? Is that correct? Um, for me, I ask them their story. What's your story? Tell me, where are you from? How do you, you know, where did you grow up? Tell me about your family. And it just opened. And and families want to share, and patients want to share that. 
So that's that's how I begin that discussion. Is I just want to know their story. Not only do you get a great history and physical <laughs> that you can use, <laughs> but you can you learn you begin to elicit some of that information, and from there it becomes such a natural and easy conversation. Oh, you know, where'd you grow up? Wow, you know, tell me about your high school. You know, what was that like? Oh, you went to Catholic high school. Okay, I know I know some things about that. And, or, you know, oh, you were born in Iran. Like, what was that like? Tell me about your family there. Tell me about the challenges of growing up. What's different between our culture and your culture? And you can really start to elicit that information. That's totally uh, I would say, from a, from a Catholic theologic standpoint, bingo. <laughs> uh, the, the story is so important. And uh, one of the things I, I've done... You know, I, I started out taking care of kids with disabilities like CP and spina bifida and all that. And you may not believe this, but for every kid in this country with cerebral palsy now, there are two adults. Because this was the generation that we didn't throw into state hospitals and they didn't wither up and die. And so we educate them. And most of the people with CP are perfectly normal intelligent. They don't talk like this because the tongue is a muscle. And I can imitate anything. I don't mean to be disrespectful, but after 32 years of doing this, I can imitate any walk or any cock or whatever. And, um, but I take care of three physicians with cerebral palsy, two of them women, by the way. And uh, so I take care of lawyers, mommies, daddies, everybody who's out there, and, and they can't find care right now because nobody knows what to do with them. But all of them have that in common. They have a story. And that story is the most important thing. And nobody's ever listened to it. And if you sit there and you'll take that 10 minutes or 15 minutes and you say, so what's coming back? They will tell you that whole story. And it will come out in detail yes, like you cannot believe. <laughs> and you just sit there and listen to it and let that happen. And know that, and, and some dean counter says, you got eight minutes with this person. Forget it, I don't have eight minutes. I was here an hour ago. I got an, e uh, an email from New York City about an, and a new uh, adult wants to come up and see me. I immediately emailed my office and say, make sure I have extra time. Because I know the first 15, 20 minutes is, so tell me what's going on. And they'll just, blah, 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 and just come right out. All of it. But once you listen to that story, you're golden. You're golden. They think, this is the first person I've ever met who cares enough to hear my story. And so from then on, you, they will work with you. And they will work at your side. So the story is so important. It's not a foot. Okay? It's not a hand. It's a human being who's got a mom and a dad somewhere and a family, whatever their family is in that story, and listen to that, and you will be built. And so with that, I'd like to just kind of wrap up um, and, and share just one perspective and one thought that I've had as we've gone through the talk this evening, and that is the importance of stories. So for the students in the room, I urge you to talk to your faculty about their Bradley or about their Mildred and Gordon, as you were talking, I had my story in my mind of that, there's this beautiful face in my mind of the patient who changed how I practice. So talk to your faculty about that moment because they are here, they're in the classrooms, 
they will share those stories with you and they will support you in that journey that you are taking. So thank you so much for sharing your stories with us. Thank and you. we would just like to say thank you with a gift. God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason because that's the proportion you're supposed to use them. Okay? Thank you for coming out. Enjoy refreshments. Carry on the conversation and tell more stories.